Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah. Wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulina wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to open our hearts to his remembrance and to the love of his messenger and to guide us in all of our affairs. We ask him to have mercy on Dr. Ahmed Saqr, rahimahullah, and all of those righteous people who have passed away before us. Ameen. Um, two comments before we start. Uh, the first is related to, well, the reflection is related to both individuals to be talked about. But one of the miraculous things about the Prophet wasallam is the influence of his behavior and character on others, uh, not only in his time, but across generations. So we spoke, I think, before about this statement of Imam Al-Qarafi, rahimahullah, where he said, لَوْ لَمْ يَكُنْ لِرَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمُ عَجِزَةٌ إِلَّا أَصْحَابَ لَكَفَوْهُ لِإِثْبَاتِ نُبُوَتِهِ That if the Prophet ﷺ only had the miracle of his companions, it would have been enough to establish his prophethood. And this is a pretty incredible concept when you think about it. Think about, and it's true. You know, for, for one person, seemingly, uh, you know, for one person to change that many lives in that drastic of a way is, is a sign of, of the sincerity of that person and their integrity and so on. Uh, but also not only in his generation but for generations. And how we still up to today get glimps- glimpses every now and then of people who have been influenced by the greatness of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wa wasallam, and uh, I think one of those people, may Allah have mercy on him, was Dr. Saqr. Uh, Dr. Saqr was um, a very, very humble person, and really had patience over a lot of things in trying to serve the Muslims. Um, one of the stories that. I'll tell you two stories that I heard from Sheikh Nauman. Um, just this Sheikh Nauman Beg in, on Friday. One of them was that when IOK, IOK used to be housed in the building of Dr. Sekhar's IEC for many years. And he said that every day Dr. Sekhar would come down and he would speak to the kids and give them reminders and talk to them and so on. And that every single day when he would come down to speak to the kids, he would ask Sheikh Nauman, is it okay if I speak to the kids? And Sheikh Nauman would tell him, you know, Dr. Sakhir, you're making me shy. Uh, I, I gave you, you have open permission. If you, if you were here in your place, you're hosting us so hospitably. And, if you, and, and you're, you know, someone who's well known. And, and if you want to talk to the, you know, students, then talk to the students, you know. He said, yeah, but every time I still have to ask. And so it shows kind of like the, the adab, uh, the etiquette that he had in the way that he would deal with people. Uh, another, the other story from Sheikh Nauman was that just about a week ago, uh, Sheikh Nauman's mother was in the hospital. She's been in and out of the hospital. Allah give her shifa. Um, and he was coming to the hospital to visit her. And uh, it was said that at some of the occasions this, this week that Dr. Sakhir's wife, Sister Zohar, was, uh, she kept speaking very highly of Sheikh Nauman. 
And the reason was that when they were leaving the hospital that day, she was thinking to herself and making dua, I don't know how I'm going to get Dr. Sakhir into the car. She's an old woman herself, right? His, his wife. And she's thinking, I don't know how I'm going to get him to the car. I don't know what I'm going to do, all of these things. And she said, then when we left the hospital and we turned around, then Sheikh Noman was there. And he was there to visit his mom. And they spoke, they exchanged salams, and he, they, they, Dr. Sakhir and his wife asked Sheikh Noman, why are you here? He said, I'm here to visit my mom. So they said, okay, let's go visit her. <laughs> this was literally like probably two days before he passed away, you know. And he said, you know, they rolled him up to the room and she spoke to him in Urdu and he understood what she was saying, although he couldn't respond. And then he made dua in Arabic and like everyone was happy and and he left. And then uh, Sheikh Noman had to, you know, like carry him uh, from his wheelchair and put him into the car and buckle him up and so on. So I, th- I think it's amazing to reflect upon the extension of the influence of the Prophet them not only in his immediate companions but in generations afterwards. Uh, another example of that from a whole different part of the world um, this week is in someone named Sheikh Musaddaq and uh, Allah Yarhamu. Uh, Sheikh Musaddaq was uh, in Egypt, in, in Cairo, it was you know, there's there's the university, and then there's where people actually study. It's not usually in the university, and uh, it's not always easy to get access to the highest level scholars unless you've kind of proven yourself. And there's there, but there was always a contingency of students who were known to be very advanced, and you can tell that they're very close with the biggest ulama in the country, and uh, a number of them were from North Africa. One of them was this brother, Sheikh Musaddaq from Tunisia. And uh, he was basically the head even of that circle. So you could say he was a rabita bain al-tulab ulama He was like the, 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 the connector between the two groups, between the students and the scholars. And he was always... Um, very much in the service of the students. Whenever new people come or if people need anything, he would be there, he would read books, study with people, so on and so forth. And he spent many years in, in Egypt. Uh, and for a most, and for all of that time, he uh, remained unmarried so that he could focus on his studies. And you would look at this person and think, you know, he's so, he's relatively young already accomplished so much he's connected with these big people he went back to his country in Tunisia he was doing his masters uh, in teaching in Zaytuna and uh, you know he just actually published the masters but it wasn't defended it wasn't defended yet and you'll look at this person and say his character is so high and his service of people is so high and his knowledge is so high that maybe 30 40 years from now this is going to be one of he, he'll be one of the great scholars of the whole ummah and uh, he was in a, in a car accident last week and he passed away. Allah And there was something interesting that was said by someone who knew him uh, that I think would be misunderstood by most people. But we can use it as a test for ourselves now in this class. And uh, if we can understand it, then the concept of loving the Prophet ﷺ and why it's so important, uh, w- I think we're close, 
closer to having some understanding of it. If we can't understand it, then you know, may Allah help us, because it's it's going to be tough. So what what it was was that uh, there's a brother named Atif who knew Sheikh Musaddaq, and he said. He, gave, he let people know that, alhamdulillah, like two, three days before Sheikh Musaddiq passed away, he actually saw the Prophet ﷺ in a dream, and he was smiling at him. And then two, three days later, he passed away. And that shortly before his death, he had actually, you know, just got like engaged to this brother Atif, uh, his sister, Atif's sister. So... He says, when the car accident happened, Atif's sister was in the car with Sheikh Musaddaq. And uh, she's still, you know, uh, under care and, and, you know, getting medical attention for the injuries that she sustained. But Sheikh Musaddaq passed away. And Atif, the, the brother of this, this woman, he said, he said, I wish that my sister would have been the one to pass away and not Sheikh Musaddaq. This is the part that's tough, right? You think like, how can... The immediate response to this is, how can you say something like that? Like, that's your sister, you know? But the reason is very... It's not because of, like, he himself. It's because of what he himself was representing and becoming. And, you know, the people who were studying with him and the work that he was doing and... Where he, where, where he was going with everything that he was doing and so on. So he's saying, I wish this person, you know, even if it was my own sister, I wish this person was still alive. It's a little bit hard to process, I think. Uh, but you understand, because this hadith of the Prophet them that Allah does not take knowledge from the earth by taking it from the chest of human beings. But he takes knowledge from the earth by the death of the people of knowledge. And he will continue to take the lives of the people of knowledge until there comes a time when the regular, the general populace will take ignorant people as their leaders and they will give opinion, they will be asked questions and they will give opinions and they will be misguided and they will misguide others. This is the hadith of the Prophet so the issue is not that someone wants their sister to die. Of course not. Uh, the issue is that it's very hard to replace a real person of knowledge. And again, as something that I said in the last uh, khutbah, is that in the Qur'an, it's not knowledge if it's not acted upon. It doesn't count. Uh, and there's two major examples of this. One of them is in the story of um, the angels who, who taught people magic and so on in, in Surah Al-Baqarah and also in the beginning of Surah Al-Rum uh, in both of these chapters there's examples of this that says uh, for example in Rum it says Lo kanu only if they had known min dunya. and then it, sa- it says only if they had known and then the next verse says they know that which is outward from this life so it's saying they don't know, and then it's saying they know. Why? Because the people who only know the outward of this life, they don't actually know. The knowledge isn't real knowledge. Uh, and so there's you know, a shortage of people who even have 
book knowledge, let alone actual practice. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala help us and guide us to them. Uh, but it's a big deal when they pass away. May Allah have mercy on him. I personally didn't know him very well to, to not uh, give the impression that I did. I knew who he was and I would see him around and things. Probably said salam to him a couple times, but I didn't know him very well. Uh, some of the other brothers who were classmates, the other American students that I was with, they knew him better, mostly because they stayed longer um, and, and, and because they were more dedicated than I was. May Allah preserve them and increase them. So, that being said, we move to the poem, inshallah. Last week, if you recall, Last week, if you recall, we spoke about this verse. I've wronged the example of him who revived the black nights, praying until his feet complained of painful swelling. So if you recall, this is the verse we, we covered, and this idea of uh, trying to be true to the way of the Messenger wasallam. And we did that little exercise where you guys so graciously uh, engaged in it to, to share your reflections. And it was very beautiful, mashallah. And so this week we're going to do verse 30. I don't think we're going to get past it, but you know, you never know. Verse 30 says, uh, which says, over his belly and soft skin, he placed a stone, tightening a belt over it to lessen the hunger pangs. So this is a continuation of the description of the Prophet ﷺ. As we said in the previous verse, he was describing the Prophet as the one who gave life and brought light to the nights by standing in prayer until his, until his feet became swollen. And then the next description of him is that he tied a stone over the skin of his stomach, his belly, uh, and tightened the belt in order to lessen hunger pains. So what is this referring to? Uh, this is referring to an incident in the life of the Prophet ﷺ that occurred in the Battle of the Trench. So last week we, we, we spoke a lot about prayer, about its importance and so on in relation to that verse. This week we're going to talk about the Battle of the Trench uh, in some detail. Not a whole lot of detail, but some detail uh, as it relates here. So this, is, this has to do with that. The Battle of the Trench occurred in the fifth year after Hijra, according to most reports. And it's also known as the Battle of the Confederates. Uh, Ghazwat al-Ahzab Surah al-Ahzab is about this The 33rd chapter of the Quran And uh, it's called the trench Because of what happened before it But it's called the Confederates We'll get to that It's called the Battle of the Confederates Because so many of the different tribes around the area Allied with Quraysh To come and try to levy this attack On the Muslim community in Medina That was going to be like Basically their last big attempt To destroy Islam and it's said that they were able to rally about 10,000 troops uh, on their side to engage in this attack. 
whereas the Muslims at that time were about 3,000. So the numbers weren't exactly in their favor from a purely material perspective. It was 10,000 to 3,000. And it's called the Battle of the Trench because of the trench that was dug around Medina uh, as a result of the advice of Salman al-Farisi radiallahu anhu. Uh, we've probably spoke a little bit before about the importance of Salman as one of the great companions of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Salman has a very interesting story that he came from a family that was very wealthy and he came from a family of fire worshippers in, uh, in Fars and Fars and he uh, one day he was very spoiled and one day he left his home and he came across people who were worshipping God and he thought to himself like this is better than what I do and so he, he joined that, that group and then that stayed with that person until that person died he asked him where should I go after you and this repeated itself like two or three times until he got to another one of these people and he said where should I go after you die and he said I don't know of anyone left <laughs> You know, Sanman was really a seeker. He said, I don't know of anyone left, but there's supposed to be a prophet that should be arising in this area, in this valley, where you're going to find palm trees and stuff like that. So Sanman was like, okay, he tries to uh, go in that direction. But as he goes in that direction, he's actually taken captive, and he's sold into slavery, and he becomes a slave in Medina. And uh, he stays in Medina, he's working there, obviously as a slave, and uh, eventually the message of Islam makes its way to Medina. And uh, one day he overhears his master speaking, he was, he was uh, amongst one of the Jewish tribes in Medina, and he heard his master speaking to another person about this man who came out, and he's claiming this and that, and he was so like, he almost basically fell out of a tree, listening to it and then he asked the master you know like what's going on what is this thing and the guy hit him told him like it's not your business you just do your work and so he went back to his work but he made the intention to try to find the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam um and he had certain signs like he knew that the prophet sallallahu had the mark of prophethood the seal of the prophets between his shoulders and he knew that he would take um, he would take for himself from something that was a gift, but not something that was charity. So you know he went and he he tested the prophet. So I sent them, took him some took him some stuff. He said, "This is for you and your companions. It's a, it's charity to you." And the prophet so I sent them put it down, and he didn't touch it. And his companions ate from it. Then he brought him another time some food, and he told him, "This is for you and your companions, and it's a gift." And uh, so he sat it down and he ate from it. So he realized, okay, this is a thing. Then he was, went to the Prophet them one day and he was like trying to look and see, like, see if he can catch a glimpse of the birthmark or the mark of the seal of prophethood. And the Prophet them showed it to him. Uh, like, and, and then he basically fell down and was crying and kissing him and you know, saying that he finally found this, the Messenger of Allah. And uh, the Prophet them, you know, spoke to him and he asked him what his story was, basically. In, in all intensive purposes, he asked him what his story was. And uh, they heard the story of Salman and so on. And, and so he became a great companion of the Prophet them. After that, he was known to be very well-mannered, to be very knowledgeable, to be very wise, very strong, reliable. 
uh, one of the, the leading companions of the Prophet So in this occasion of the Battle of the Trench, uh, it was the Sunnah of the Prophet when there was a serious battle or issue that would arise to take Shura. Um, he would take the consultation of his people. And so uh, when this battle was happening and they got wind, you know, it was kind of a surprise, but someone told them and they got wind that this whole army is coming. Then he called the companions, he asked them, what do you think we should do and so on. And Salman said, I think we should dig this trench. And of course, because he came from outside of Arabia, he was aware of things, uh, war tactics and stuff like that, that they didn't know about. So this was unheard of in Arabia. Uh, but Salman said, yeah, the way that the city is set up, the mountains are here and, and so on, and there's only one side that they could attack us from. So what we should do is just build this trench. And we'll dig this deep trench and we'll, we'll uh, defend it so that they can't break into the city and then we can hold them off. Um, so interestingly enough, you know, he took Shura. The Prophet ﷺ was also very skilled at benefiting from the talents of the people that were among him. Which is uh, really uh, something that's so difficult to do, but something that it seems that he did naturally. You know, he just, he, he, he was able to do that. Sanman was there, he took Sanman's advice. It wasn't, I'm the messenger of Allah, I'm going to make the decision. But that he had some wisdom to carry out in that regard. The same thing happened in the Battle of Badr. That they went to stop and they stopped behind the wells. And one of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ said, Ya Rasulullah, like this decision to stop in this place, is it revelation or is it from just war strategy? You know, he has, there's still adab. So is, it, is it revelation or is it strategy of war? The Prophet ﷺ told him it's strategy of war. He said, if that's the case, then my opinion is we stop after the wells. Because then we cut off their access to the water sources and we ourselves have access to water. You know, so it was, and the Prophet ﷺ took that. So he, he took the shura and he benefited from the skills of, of the people. And the battle itself then was uh, a great example, or what led up to the battle actually, because there really wasn't a battle in, in the end for the most part. But what led up to the battle was a great example of the love of the Prophet ﷺ for his companions, uh, their love for one another, his camaraderie with them, you know, how close he was with them. And as, as well as his humility, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. You see all of these in, in this battle. So one of them, one of the issues is that the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam dug the trench with the companions. You know, and again, this is a recurring theme. He also built the first masjid in in, in Medina when they when they came to this the area of Medina. He also took part in building the masjid, and he used to put the stones on his shoulder himself, and they would say like you know. <coughs> Let us carry it for you or so on He's like I, He can do it himself So he was part of the whole process And uh, in digging the trench was very very hard work And Sanman was kind of in charge of Understanding how are we going to break the people up And how deep are we going to dig it And how wide does it need to be And how much time is that generally going to take And so they were working continuously For a number of days And they weren't eating very much And so and the Prophet ﷺ was there with them Digging the trench and so on. Salman was uh, was in charge of this, and he was also a great worker because he was well built, and he was strong. He was tall. 
he had been working as a slave for a number of years in the first place in the fields of, uh, of some of these Jewish tribes. So, you know, there's a difference in, in build from someone who works and someone who doesn't. As you guys probably know, uh, manual labor has its consequences. And one of, the, one of the places we would see this in Egypt all the time is when people come from the village. So people come from the village to the city. Usually when they come from the village, they have uh, like really thick hands. Fingers are really thick, you know, because they're used to pulling things and holding things and, and carrying stuff. And there's a, a level of strength that comes along with that. Uh, one of the funny stories about this that my, my relative of ours would tell sometimes is that when they were in Afghanistan as, as young people, I think they were in high school and they were doing this field trip to the countryside. And you had a couple of people in the class that were bodybuilders and they thought they were very strong and tough and stuff like that. And so the teacher saw there was a lady carrying some stuff on her head, you know, as you see in these old school type things. She's just carrying it on her head and she's going. And he asked her, can you just take that and put that down here? She said, okay. And she put it down. And he said, you guys think you're strong, right? Who can pick this thing up? And all of these students in the class, they went, and they're bodybuilders and everything, and they can't pick it up off the ground. <laughs> and then the teacher tells them afterwards, you know, he tells the lady, go ahead, thank you, you know, you proved my point, you can take it and go. And she just takes it and lifts it, puts it on her head and keeps going. Right? So there's a natural strength that comes. It's not natural, but it, it's, it, there's a strength that comes from working uh, in manual labor and so on that's, that's important. So Sunman uh, had that. So he was a good worker and he was well built. And because of that... You know, one of the things you see in, in this whole thing of building the trench is that the companions, they were very um, kind of like remaining positive and having a decent time while doing it. They would sing songs and they would sing poetry and they would start one part and the Prophet them would finish and different things like this. So at, at, at some point when they're digging, then they started to claim Salman. So the Muhajireen are saying, Salman minna. Salman is from us. The, the people from Mecca are saying, Salmanu minna, he's from us, because he's a muhajir, he comes from outside of Medina, right? And then the people of Medina are saying, no, Salmanu minna, he's from us, because he was here when you guys came here, you know, like he had been living here for some time and so on. And then as they're going through this debate, then the Prophet ﷺ steps in and he says, Salmanu minna ahlu bayt. He says that Salman is from us. The Prophet ﷺ is attributing him to himself. He said, Salman is from us. He's from the household of the Prophet ﷺ. He's from Ahlul Bayt. So this is also one of the great merits uh, of Salman ﷺ that the Prophet ﷺ spoke about him in this way. Uh, the other thing that they were saying, that you know, the Prophet ﷺ would, would sing lines of poetry. Uh, they would say things like, Allahumma la Aisha illa Aisha al-Akhirah. You know, they would say, Oh Allah, there's no life except for the life of the hereafter. And they were kind of just, you know, like reminding themselves to work harder. They would say, Allahumma la khayra illa khayra al-akhira. Faghfir lil-ansari wal-muhajira. You know, the Prophet them would say this. That, Oh Allah, there's no good except for the good of the next life. So have mercy on the, on the, uh, the helpers and the immigrants. The people of Medina and the people of Mecca. So he would sing with them and they would do this, uh, they would go about this work. So the line specifically on, on the issue of tying the rock to his belt, uh, or to his stomach, 
it, it has to do with a particular incident that happened with a companion named Jabir radiallahu an, who narrates this story. And um, he says that basically there was an understanding that if they come to places in the trench that they can't break the stones. You know, the stones are too big, they're too strong, and they're kind of stuck. Then uh, they should call the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa them. And oftentimes they would try to call others first. Like maybe they try to call Omar first and see if Omar can break this rock. Or they call Salman, they see if Salman can break this rock because they were strong. And if they couldn't, then they would go to the Prophet ﷺ. So they came to this rock that they couldn't break. And they called the Prophet ﷺ. And he said, Ana nazid. You know, like, I'm going to go down in the trench. And so when he went down into the trench, that's when his, his stomach area was exposed a little bit. And Jabir noticed that he had this stone tied to his stomach. Okay, so what is this? This is basically, the person is so hungry that you take a stone and tie the stone to your stomach so that you, you give yourself the impression that there's something in your stomach. Now, notice that the Prophet ﷺ didn't tell them this. That's what I think is so interesting about this story. He didn't tell them this. He didn't say anything. Jabir an he saw it. He noticed when he went down into the ditch, he saw it. And then, uh, and then the story happened after that. One of the things to think about is... Uh, what a lucky stone that was <laughs> you know what a lucky stone that was to to be so close to the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and there's a beautiful story from the battle of badr that's uh, kind of related to that that in the battle of badr before it the the muslims were lining up uh, and the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam was checking the rows and he noticed that this one companion was out of line you know he was standing they're lined up and he's out of line so he kind of like tapped him with his stick in the stomach and told him get back in line you know get back in line so this companion he said ya rasulullah you've injured me <laughs> you injured me and you hurt me so the prophet sallallahu immediately he lifted his his shirt and he told him take your right from me like he said immediately you know he hit him he said you hurt me like that wasn't obviously that wasn't his intent but if that's what happened, take your right. This is your right, you take your right. And his name was Sawad, radiallahu anhu. And Sawad, after, uh, when the Prophet ﷺ did this, he approached him, and right as he was about to get to him, he actually bent down and kissed him. And he said to him something very beautiful. He said to him, uh, O Messenger of Allah, you see what is in front of us, and I may not survive this battle. If this is my last time with you, I want the last thing I do in life to be this. And then they went into the battle and he actually died in that battle. So you see that he, he planned that whole thing. <laughs> he planned the whole thing so that the last thing that happens, if, he's gonna, if he does not make it through that battle, that the last thing that will happen in his life is that he touched the Prophet you know, So it's very, very beautiful. So to be that stone. So Jabir asked this, he saw this. And he asked permission from the Prophet ﷺ to go home. Uh, he was from the people of Medina. So he asked him permission to go home. And he, he went home and he greeted his wife. And he told her, you know, رَأَيْتُ مِن رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم ما لا أصبر عليه. He told her that I saw something from the Prophet ﷺ 
that I am not capable of having patience over. She was like, okay. And then he said, do we have any food? And she said, all we have is this small, uh, like a baby sheep type thing, a small sheep, and I have some barley. So he told her, okay, make that, and I'm going to invite the Prophet to have some food, because he's so hungry, you know. So he goes, and he kind of like approaches the Prophet and he tells him, Ya Rasulullah, you know, I have some food, come to the house. Uh, and, and one of the things he says to ayyim to ayyim is like uh, ta'am is food right to ayyim is the tasghir of ta'am it's like I have a little bit of food so ya rasulullah I have a little bit of food come with me so it's like to waylib to waylib is the small version of talib so uh, so there's small versions of everything omer is the small version of omar you can do this with any number of words so he tells him, I have a little bit of food, come to the house. And he says, the Prophet look at the detail, right? He says, the Prophet put the palm of his hand in the palm of my hand, and he locked fingers with my fingers. And then we turned to walk, and he turned and he yelled to all of the companions, come to the home of Jabir, he's prepared food for you. <laughs> so imagine like, <laughs> what's, what's going to happen, right? So Jabir says, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un. <laughs> you know, like, we, we belong to Allah and to Allah we return. What am I, this is the thing that you say when a calamity strikes you. What am I going to do? So he kind of like breaks away and he goes home. Look how smart his wife was, subhanAllah. Allah radiallahu anha. She's a brilliant woman. He said to her, I, was, I invited him, but then he called all of the companions to come. And she said, she, you know, he said, he's coming, he's coming with all of these companions. And she said, did you do it or did he do it? It's a very important question, right? Did you do it or did he do it? And then Jabir radiallahu an, you know, he was a good husband too, alhamdulillah. He's not the one who did it. <laughs> it's not like, honey, I'm going to have some people come over. And then you call back five minutes later. And by the way, there's 45 of them. <laughs> he just said... He's the one who did it. And her response was, then leave it to be because Allah and His Messenger know better. Just come and we'll see what happens. You know. And so the Prophet ﷺ, he went to the home and he asked to be shown like basically the pot that was being cooked from. And then he, he went to it and he... Different, there's different things that are said. But basically, he called the companions to eat piece by piece, like group by group. One group come, then another group come, then another group come, until everyone had come and eaten from their fill, and the food was still there in the pot. And then he told the family, now you can eat from your fill, and then everyone ate, and that was it. And this, of course, is one of the miracles of the Prophet ﷺ. What's interesting <coughs> is that in, in, in modern-day Islam, we're like very, very... Um, Sensitive about miracles People don't like the concept of miracles they want, We want to be able to rationalize everything In perfect mathematics and science uh, Which could be possible in this case as well But that's a different discussion And so you don't like these things But I remember one time I was like flipping through TV It was many years ago And I came across the Christian, one of the Christian channels And somehow right when I was flipping through this, channel, this TV And I landed on this channel 
they were saying something negative about Islam. So one of the things they were saying was that, you know, you should believe in Jesus because Jesus had miracles and Muhammad didn't have miracles. And I was thinking to myself, like, subhanAllah, even beyond the Qur'an, there's a number of miracles that are in the seerah of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. They're not the standard way that human existence operates, but they happened, and we have reason to believe that they happened. Um, so, it's, it's completely possible that the, the blessing of the Prophet them would do that. And I've even heard stories from people like in our time now, uh, we don't, in Arabic there's two different words for it, in English I don't really think that there is, but basically there's miracles that are only for prophets, and then there's Miracles that are for non-profits What they're basically, you know, could be Heard stories of people who have had things like this That they cooked food and they invited people And then a whole lot of people came More than they expected But somehow the food was still enough And like different things like this, you know uh, But it can happen So this is what, this is what happened And then everyone ate And uh, if you think about it as well It's kind of an indication of what's going to happen in the battle afterwards. So when they uh, get invited to this home, and a few people, uh, he is expecting to feed two or three people, and many, many, many people show up, but they're all fed. Then there's an indication that there are, uh, I don't think we can call them supernatural, because Allah is the controller of all things, but there are abnormal things that are happening. Um, and, and can happen And this is what occurred in the battle That they, they were at a stalemate for a number of days And then basically one night a, a really powerful wind came And just like drove the enemies away A lot of them left A lot of their camps were destroyed Their animals left And all these kind of things And then the battle was basically over So it was, there was a miraculous beginning to the battle And there was a miraculous end to the battle uh, and this is totally possible in the life of the Prophet It's also a great reminder that hope is extremely necessary. Hope is extremely necessary. And uh, especially in the face of a lot of things that occur, um, hope is not always the easiest thing to maintain. You know, uh, especially when uh, we're largely focused on uh, very, like when you're always following the news, when you're always looking at things that are happening, when you're, then you feel like there's just no hope, right? How, how can we have hope about everything that's going on? And on the flip side, like we said last week in the end of the session, is that when you, when you focus on Allah, Ahlan bishaykha, Ahlan bil ustadha, when you focus on Allah, it's much easier to have hope. So, for example, I, I personally, after you know the things that occurred um, in the last couple of weeks, it's hard to stay positive and like remain hopeful. And you know, Imam Zaid made a very beautiful du'a at at the ten year anniversary of Tatlif, and one of the things he said in the du'a was. Uh, oh Allah, if this, if we are, if we are truly in the end of times and facing great trials, then allow us to be from those who, when they have a seedling in their hand, they plant it. This is really just a beautiful, Subhanallah. You know this hadith of the Prophet ﷺ about how if you have a seedling in your hand, 
and the day of judgment was to come, you should plant it. It's a very, very positive uh, concept. You should, you just keep doing good, keep doing good, keep doing good. So when he made that du'a, it was really touching. And uh, so uh, I was just, you know, feeling overwhelmed with all this stuff. And of course, you get a lot of stories come to you, a lot of people come to you, a lot of things that are going on. And you know, one of the things that was said, it's so simple and it's so true. And that thing that was said was, Allah is, Allah is still Akbar. <laughs> it doesn't matter what, all these things that are going on, Allah is still Akbar. Allah is still greater. Allah is still more powerful. Allah is, Allah is still Allah. And we still worship Allah. We still seek Allah. Um, and sometimes the most profound things are very, very simple. You know? And so one of the other lessons that comes in this battle... As I mentioned in the beginning, uh, I kind of hinted at in the beginning, is that the way of the Prophet ﷺ was such that he didn't distinguish himself from his companions. Um, he worked with them, he dressed like them, he, he, he stayed with them. Um, there's even, you know, like for example, the incident of the immigration, that when the Prophet ﷺ and Abu Bakr approached Medina, there were a number of people in Medina who had never seen the Prophet before. So they didn't know who's the Prophet and who's Abu Bakr. And as they were going on their trip, they would take turns. You know, who rides and who doesn't ride. And uh, when they came to Medina, it happened to be, or, you know, like they couldn't tell and they assumed that Abu Bakr was the Prophet size in them. And Abu Bakr knew this, so he kind of like uh, started shading the Prophet or like blowing, you know fanning him a little bit or something to indicate like I'm Abu Bakr and this is the Prophet so I send them to people because they just couldn't tell uh, and the same thing with Abu Bakr afterwards the same thing with Umar radiallahu anh afterwards that people came people would Umar would be the ruler of the Muslims and people would come from outside and they would say like there's the famous incident that they asked where's where's the Amir al-Mu'mineen where's the ruler of the Muslims and they said that's him over there sleeping under the tree like <laughs> he's just asleep <laughs> under the tree no one's guarding him, nothing's going on. And they said, subhanAllah, like this is, when you're just, this is how you can be. You just, that's it, you just lay under the tree and you don't worry about it. Because everything is, everything is in order. So the Prophet them didn't uh, distinguish himself. And he was hungry just the way that all of them were hungry. And certainly, if he had told them that he was hungry, he could get food, right? I mean... It's, and this is the, the thing you have to, we have to always remember about the Prophet them was that, and, and it's coming in the next uh, two verses from now, is that, in the next one, but also two verses from now, is that his lack of material things was not uh, because he didn't have access to them. This is a, it's a conscious choice. That the, the, like in the sense that he could, he could have been full. If he went to it, and he could have not worked in the trench. Nobody would have... Would any of the companions have second-guessed it? If the Prophet ﷺ stood there and was like, Okay, send man, you take this over. I'm going to sit over here. I'm the Prophet of God. So I have to take care of myself. And if someone can bring me some food, that would be nice. I mean, he could have done all of that, right? And nobody would say anything. It's the Prophet of God. And, but that's not how the Prophet ﷺ was. 
And so they noticed that the stone was there because he went down into the ditch and because it was exposed. And it was, so it's a sign. One of the things from that is that it's a sign of his truthfulness. That if you weren't honestly and truly the messenger of God who's carrying out this task that you've been given, uh, why would you do that? <laughs> there's, there's no reason to live the way that the Prophet them lived unless he was true about his message. So it's a sign of the truthfulness of his message. Uh, the second thing is that great leaders don't force distinction between them and their people. You know, uh, the Prophet them was respected. He, he didn't have to distinguish himself in order to be distinguished. He already was. And his people respected him as such and they loved him as such more than they loved, more than any other leader was loved by their people. Because it's the way he was, sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam. So that's verse number 30. Wow, we've already gone for 45 minutes, but we have another 20. Let's do a little bit more, inshallah. Verse number 31 is, Which is, High mountains sought to tempt him by turning to gold. But he showed them lofty height upon height. High mountains tried to tempt him by turning to gold. And he showed them lofty height upon height. Does this mean that the mountains actually spoke to the Prophet and said, you know, we'll turn to gold for you? It's possible. But we don't have any indication of that. But what we do have is indication that the Prophet them. Uh, chose the route that he chose. And so in that, there's at least metaphorically the temptation of the mountains of gold and that he was given the option. Uh, the Prophet them says, uh, he said, my Lord offered me the valleys of Mecca in gold. And I said, no, Ya Rabb, uh, rather I will be hungry one day and I will be satiated one day. So when I am satiated, I will be grateful to you and when I'm hungry, I will turn to you and call on you. So this was the decision that the Prophet ﷺ made. In other narrations, it said that he was given the choice to be a servant messenger or a prophet king. Like Sulaiman was a prophet king. And the Prophet ﷺ was given the choice. Do you want to be this kind of figure? Or do you want to be a servant messenger? And again, the same response. I'll be a servant messenger so that I'm hungry one day. And I'm satiated one day and I'll turn to you. And this is the route that the Prophet ﷺ chose. He consciously uh, chose this route. And, and that was his way and that was his sunnah. And uh, it's, a, it's a very important reminder that true elevation and greatness is not known through one's access to material goods. You know, access to material goods is not an indication of one's greatness. But... Someone could have very, very little, and they can be very, very great. And if you recall, we had a very important example of this with Uwais and Qarni. When we told the story of Uwais and Qarni, who nobody even knew who he was, uh, until the point that they even didn't consider him worthy of being mentioned. When, the, when, when Omar was asking, is there anyone like this from among you? The people of Yemen were like, no. And then after he asked a couple of times, they're like, yeah, there's the guy who watches our camels. It's not... We don't even really need to mention him, but he's there. 
And that was the best of the tabi'een. So it's not known through those kind of things. Uh, it's known through the greatness of one's soul and their spirit. Uh, there's a number of things that indicate this from the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and so as we bring this session to a close, I would like to read uh, a number of hadith. And uh, the reading of hadith is a great tradition of Islam, and unfortunately, a mostly lost tradition of Islam is to read hadith and give light commentary, just so we can be connected to uh, the statements of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So I'm going to read a little bit from the chapter on the excellence of ascetic life from Riyadh al-Salihin. I'm not going to read all of it. And there's other chapters as well that have very beneficial points. But I'm just going to take a little bit from here. Amr ibn Awf al-Ansari radiallahu an reported that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam sent Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah radiallahu an to Bahrain to collect the jizya. So he returned from Bahrain with wealth. The Ansar got news of it and joined with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in the Fajr prayer. When the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam concluded the prayer, they stood in his way. When he saw them, he smiled and said, I think you have heard about the arrival of Abu Ubaidah with something from Bahrain. <laughs> You must be standing here for a reason. You must have heard that he came back. They said, Yes, O Messenger of Allah. He وسلم, said, Rejoice and hope for that which will please you. By Allah, it is not poverty that I fear for you, but I fear that this world will be opened up with its wealth for you as it was opened up to those before you. And you vie with one another over it as they did, and eventually it will ruin you as it ruined them. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Very very powerful hadith I don't fear It's not poverty that I fear for you I fear that you're going to have too much And you're going to start arguing over who gets more And then it's just going to be all messed up uh, And subhanAllah Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiallahu an reported Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Sat on the pulpit and we sat around him Subhanallah. Jalasa Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ala al-minbar wa jalasna hawla. Now you remember how big is the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam's minbar? How many steps on the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam's Three. It's a very small minbar. Three steps. And he would, st- there's different hadith where he stepped and he said ameen to different things and Jibreel alayhi salam was making dua for one of the things that he said Amin to was that the, you know, may the person who hears my name and doesn't say Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, may they be ruined. So that's why I keep repeating it. Everyone's like, it's getting, because we get reward, alhamdulillah. So it was three steps. And after the Prophet Sallallahu died and Abu Bakr assumed his member to give the khutbahs and stuff like that, he wouldn't go to the third step. He would come to the second. You know? So he says that he was sitting there with him. There was, he was sitting on the member and they were sitting around him and he said what I am concerned most with is the flourishment and the beauty of this world will be available to you you know you're going to be just tempted by everything in this world another hadith in this chapter is the statement that we just mentioned that was that they used to say when they were digging the trench it's in this, tr- it's in this chapter Allahumma la illa akhira 
Oh Allah, there is no life, uh, no, no true life except the life of the hereafter. Uh, the Prophet ﷺ also Anas reported عن, that the Messenger of Allah ﷺ said, Three things follow a dead person, members of his family, his property, or her property of course, and his deeds. Two of them return and one remains. The people and the wealth return and the deeds remain. So it's an indication that the deeds are what matters in life more than the property and other things. <coughs> the Prophet ﷺ is reported to also have said, This world in comparison with the hereafter is similar to what one gets when they put their finger in the ocean. Let them see what it returns with. So if you dip your finger, if you go to the ocean, you dip your finger in the ocean and you pull it, and then there's like a little drop at the end of your finger. That's this life. And the ocean is the hereafter. So it's, uh, it's a lot. Mm. Jabir ibn Abdullah reported that the Messenger of Allah said, or was going through the bazaar with his companions on both sides when he saw a dead skinny lamb. He held its ear and he said, Who of you would like to have it for a dirham? They replied, we do not like to get it for nothing. And what shall we do with it? You know, this dead animal. What are we going to do? He's trying to, you want it? They said, we don't have any, anything we can do with it. Then he, sallallahu alayhi wa asked, would you like to have it for nothing? They replied, had it been alive, it would have been defective because it is skinny. But when dead, it is of no use. And the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa said, truly, the world is more contemptible. You know, the dunya, this life is more contemptible to Allah than this is to you and you don't find anything in this same thing with the hereafter of course you have to balance these with the understanding that you can't have anything in the hereafter if you don't take advantage of this life in the good way in the positive way um, maybe one more or two more the Prophet said if I had gold equal to Mount Uhud it would not please me to pass three nights and I have a thing of it left with me Except what I retain for repayment of a debt. So whatever he had, he would give it. He would give whatever he had, uh, and that was the way that he lived. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Just as a tempering point, um, modern life is not exactly the same as pre-modern life. So the Prophet sallam could give all kinds of things, and he would still have his home. That he could go back to, you know, he could still go into the marketplace, do a little things, make a little bit of money, eat that day, probably eat. like for example in Egypt, you could eat every day for really cheap. If you had, a, Fawad's not here. Fawad did an experiment. He he tried to live like basically off a dollar or two a day, food wise, <laughs> and you could you you could pull that off. So you could you could go out and like walk in the street. See someone carrying something. Tell them, hey, can I carry that for you? And you give me a couple guinea. And then you carry it for them. You get a couple guinea and you could go eat. You could theoretically do that. And if you have a place to live, then you have a place to live. So, but like modern American life is not really that way. So, you know, temper, read it in reality as well. Doesn't mean that we should be stingy. But uh, we also have to, um, you know take care of ourselves in, in a way that's reasonable for our families and so on. Uh, the Prophet ﷺ said, uh, 
May he be miserable, the worshipper of the dinar and the dirham, and the worshipper of the striped silk cloak. If he is given anything, he is satisfied. Uh, but if not, he is unsatisfied. This idea that you know, the person who is always searching for more material goods, then that's a, a route towards destruction. And if they have things, they're happy. But if they don't have things, then they're very unhappy. Uh, and again, this doesn't... Um, it's a difference between not having a lot and being in a state of like abject, severe poverty. So uh, you should always kind of like keep that in mind, uh, that these are not necessarily equal. So there's a lot of examples of this. If you want to go to the chapter, you can go to the chapter and read it. It's actually a long section, and I would encourage people to. But it's just a reminder as to the way of the Prophet and what he chose for himself as well. He said that the Prophet rooms were rooms. They weren't homes. There were rooms that he lived in. And it's said afterwards that he would be able to uh, reach up to the ceiling like a boy would be able to reach up and touch the ceiling of his home. This was, this, this was how, how he lived, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. May Allah have mercy on him and guide us in this life and the next and have mercy on those who have passed away. Ameen. Wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam taslima kathira.